0: Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number 1 New York Times best-selling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad-free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/nocturnal.
1: CHAPTER TWENTY. HUNTER'S BLIND Like any good hunter, Brian waited. He didn't know how he'd come to be here, but he recognized the place. He was on Post Street, his back to an abandoned, boarded-up laundromat at the corner of a little alley called Meacham Place. A gate of square, ten-foot-high black bars blocked the entrance to the alley. Beyond those bars, he would take his prey. Covered by a damp, smelly blanket, He lay perfectly still. Streetlights lit up most of the concrete sidewalk, but couldn't chase away all of the darkness. Shadows flexed and moved in time with the passing of late-night cars and taxis. The blanket covered every inch of his body, everything except for a narrow slit through which he could watch. People ignored his presence, and why not? Just one more nasty-ass bum sleeping on the streets, an everyday sight in San Francisco. People walked past, only a few feet away, oblivious to the concept that death hid beneath tattered, filthy, third-hand fabric. Many times, on nights just like these, he had grabbed such people and dragged them into the darkness. He waited for the boy with the curly black hair. Hail to the king! First had come the visions. Visions of hateful faces, tastes of fear and the flush of humiliation of helplessness. Waking dreams made Brian feel what it was like to be bullied by a pack of boys, to be beaten by a woman who should have protected, to be violated by a man who promised love. All of those people had wronged the king. All of those people had to be punished. How dare they hurt him? How dare they... Brian and the others searched, they watched, they hunted, until the faces of dreams matched faces of flesh and blood. The priest had been first. He could only die once, so they had made it last. Now the bullies would pay the same price. Brian wanted the blonde boy, the leader, but he was hard to find. He was difficult game. The curly-haired boy, though, he was predictable. He often came this way. It would not be enough to just take the curly-haired boy away, to make him disappear. There was too much rage for that too much anguish like with the priest the world had to know hail to the king the curly-haired boy turned the corner brian stayed calm stayed motionless inside his hunting blind moving nothing except his eyes brian wasn't the smartest he knew that but he could hunt like no one else as big as he was the prey never saw him coming The boy walked down the sidewalk like he owned the whole street. His turf, his neighborhood, his territory. Big enough that most would avoid him. Young enough to think he controlled his life. To think that no one wanted to mess with him. One womb. The heat of the hunt boiled inside Brian's skin. A feeling so primitive it bordered on lust. Brian wanted to kill. Needed to kill. The black curly hair stuck out beneath the boy's white baseball hat. He wore a dark crimson jacket with the big, angled letters BC on the left chest. An eagle, forever paused with wings back and talons outstretched, sat in the middle of those letters. The boy drew closer. Brian breathed slowly. The boy glanced at Brian's blind, then wrinkled his nose and looked away. The boy drew even with Brian, took two steps past, then came the voice help me that voice came from behind the black gate the boy stopped looked through the gates bars into meacham places still shadows brian knew what the boy would see on the right scraggly ten foot tall trees growing up out of the narrow sidewalk trunks only a foot from a brick wall their leaves casting down lightless pools of deep black on the left the laundromat's crumbling masonry, broken windows, and layers of graffiti. And in the middle, lying on the cracked pavement, a bearded man in a white tank top. Brian waited. There were enough cars passing by that if the boy ran, Brian would have to let him go. If the boy went into the alley, Brian and the others would move. Take the bait. The boy looked down into his left again examining Brian's blind, again deciding the unmoving, blanket-covered homeless person wasn't worth worrying about. The man in the alley called out a second time, so softly that no one but the boy would hear. Help me. Please. I'm hurt. Take the bait. The boy gripped the gate's black bars. He quietly climbed over, careful to avoid the pointy spear tops, and dropped down on the other side. Brian moved without a sound, turning his head slightly to look down Post Street, empty enough to act. He quietly stood, but remained hunched over. Brian was careful to keep the big blanket looped around his face like a hood, so that no one could see what was underneath. The rancid fabric cut off his peripheral vision, but that didn't matter. It was almost over. A crawl of fear washed over him, The monster was always out there somewhere. Brian looked up, scanned the buildings above, looking for movement, for an outline. Nothing. He had to draw the symbol, and soon, or the monster would come for him. Mister, he heard the boy say. You okay? Was the boy going to try and help, or was he just looking for an easy victim? It didn't matter. Brian bent slightly, then jumped. He sailed over the gate and came down silently on the other side. One womb. One family. The man in the white tank top lay on the ground, his beer gut spilling out from under the shirt and over his dirty jeans. He wore a green John Deere ball cap. He reached up a chubby hand toward the boy who stood a few feet away. Help me. Please. Marco was a good actor, really good. The boy moved closer. You got any money, asshole? The heat of the hunt bubbled Brian's soul. He took a step toward the prey. When he did, his foot ground a small rock against the asphalt, making a slight skrit sound that caused the curly haired boy to turn. Brian smelled fear. The boy realized he'd made a mistake. He was cut off trapped between two men. His hands clenched into fists, his eyes narrowed, and his head dipped down a little, as if he might lash out at any second. Like most trapped animals, the boy growled a warning. "'Fuck off!' he said to Brian. "'Don't fuck with me, you piece of shit bum!' Behind the boy, Marco silently rose to his feet. Brian finally stood tall and let the filthy blankets drop to the ground. The boy's face changed. The haughty look slowly slipped away, his angry, icy stare melting into puzzlement. He took a step back, right into Marco's belly. The boy turned, found himself face to face with Marco. It was hard to see anything under that beard, but Brian knew Marco was smiling. Marco reached behind his back. When his hand came out again, it held a rust-spotted hatchet. The alley's feeble light flickered off the sharpened edge. Don't, the boy said. He didn't sound that tough anymore. Brian heard the flap of fabric, of things falling from above. The others landed on either side of the boy. One remained tucked under a dark blanket, his face hidden save for the glint of a yellow eye. The other let the blanket slide free. Brian saw a nightmare. A man with purple skin, with big black eyes. It stared at the boy for a moment, then smiled wide, a mouth full of big white triangular teeth. The one still hidden inside a blanket spoke. Pierre, he said, in a voice that sounded like sandpaper on rough wood. This one is yours. Take him. Sly had kept his promise. Hail to the king, motherfucker. Brian rushed in. He took the bully from behind, teeth sinking into the prey's shoulder. Brian's mouth filled with the vibrations of crunching bone, the nylon taste of the crimson jacket, and the sweet heat of squirting blood. Brian opened his eyes. His heart mule-kicked in his chest. Adrenaline-pumped cactus prickle through his veins and muscles and skin. His pulse blasted away, undeniable in one place more than any other. He sat on the edge of the bed, staring off into the dark room, his rock-hard erection pitching a tent in his underwear. The dream had gone farther than the last. Brian hadn't just stalked, he'd attacked. He had tasted blood. He could still taste it. So why was he vibrating with excitement when he should be vomiting in disgust? Why did he have a boner so hard a cat couldn't scratch it? And why did he feel like he was being watched by someone who wanted to kill him? What the fuck is wrong with me? No one answered, because there was no one else in the room. There was never anyone else. He was alone in his silent apartment as he had been every day since he'd moved out of Robin's place. He reached over to his nightstand to grab the pen and the notebook he'd left there. He drew a few scraggly lines. He didn't even know what it was, only that it wasn't quite right. Still that feeling, that being-watched feeling, it faded away. Brian let out a long, deep breath, then set the pad and pen back on the nightstand. He stared at it for a moment then picked it up again and wrote down two words. Meacham Place. He set the pad down a second time, then snuck a peek in his underwear. Boner diffused. He felt better, but there was no point in trying to go back to sleep. He could still taste the kid's hot blood in his mouth. And it tasted good. He pulled the bed's comforter tight around his shoulders and stumbled to the living room, feeling a sudden urge to watch creature features on cable. Chapter 21 Pleasant Dreams Rex woke suddenly, sat straight up in bed. His chest heaved, his face dripped with sweat that cooled in the night air. In the dream, Rex hadn't feared Oscar. Oscar had feared Rex. Then the grabbing, the biting, and that taste, the taste of blood. Rex pushed back the damp covers. The air cooled his sweaty skin. It also cooled a spot down there. He looked to his bedroom door. It was closed. He looked at the clock. 3.14 a.m. Roberta would be asleep. He pushed the covers down past his legs. In the alarm clock's faint red light, he saw a darker spot on his underwear. Rex reached down and touched. Wet. He looked at the door again. In his sleep, he had done the bad thing, the naughty thing. Would she find out? If she did, she would beat him. Rex started to shake. He slid the underwear off, then stuffed them in the bottom of his book bag. He grabbed three sheets of Kleenex and cleaned himself up, eyes constantly flicking to the door. He put on a fresh pair of underwear. So weird that he dreamed about Oscar. Rex quietly walked to his desk. A streetlight outside his window cast a dim glow on his most recent drawing, a pencil sketch of Rex using a sledgehammer to crush the skull of Oscar Woody. How he wished that was reality, that he could strike back at them, make them pay. But drawings and dreams weren't real life. Rex felt tears welling up in his eyes. He grabbed the paper, crumpled it into a ball, and threw it in the trash. He then crawled back into bed, his sheet still wet with his own sweat. Rex threw his head down on the pillow and pulled the covers up tight. His eyes squeezed shut. Shaking and alone, he cried. Chapter 22 Brian Clauser Morning Person The brown Buick cut across three lanes of traffic. Brian covered his face, trying to ignore the chorus of horns sounding in the car's wake. Jesus, Pooks, try not to kill me before we go back on nights, will ya? Pussy, Pookie said. Hey, I have some more ideas on our series bible. It's your TV show, Pooks, not ours. I'm not writing anything. You're an executive producer, Pookie said. No one knows what the hell executive producers do anyway. Here's my idea. We make the chief's wife this smoking hot milf. She's ignored by her work-obsessed husband, so to fulfill her need to feel sexy and wanted... She uses her feminine wiles to tease the young rebel detectives. But it backfires on her when the good-looking detective, based on me, of course, finally beds her with the Changbang. Brian couldn't help but laugh. The Changbang was from Pookie's previous pet project, a coffee table book called 69 Sex Positions the Kama Sutra Forgot. <laughs> is the Changbang the one with the trapeze? No, the trapeze is only used in Granger's Golden Snitch. The Chang Bang is the one with the hula hoop and the semi inverted angle on the bar stool. Brian sighed and looked out the window. <sighs> the hula hoop. How could I forget? Anyway, we checkmark yes for hot scene, but we also get ongoing dramatic tension as our one night fling turns into a torrent love affair. Torrid. What? Torrid, not torrent. That too, Pookie said. The staff sergeant with the heart of gold finds out and tries to give wisdom to the young rebel detective. And it makes things dicey between young rebel detective and his nemesis, the crotchety old guard chief of police. Your show seems to be more about sex than police work, Brian said. You getting laid these days? Pookie shook his head. Nope. I put Junior and the twins into a hiatus while I work on the series, Bible. Well, then maybe you should lay off the torrid scenes for a while or you're going to wind up with blue balls. Pookie's head snapped to the right. He stared at Brian. The car swerved into the left lane. Brian pointed at an oncoming truck. Dude! Pookie saw the truck, slammed the Buick back into the proper lane as the truck shot by, horn blaring. Pooks, what the fuck? Sorry, he said. But that's it. You did it. I did what? Came up with a name. Of? Of the TV show, Pookie said. You know, the thing we've been talking about for the past 15 minutes? And that name is? Blue Balls! It would have been a good joke, but the man looked serious. Pooks, you're going to name your TV show Blue Balls? Pookie nodded. You can't name a show Blue Balls. Like hell I can't, he said. Half cop drama, half softcore porn. Just think of all the classic TV shows that have lasted more than three seasons, which puts them into syndication, where the big bucks are, by the way, that have the word blue in the title. Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, Blue Bloods, Rookie Blue. Those are cop terms, Brian said. Blue balls has, like, a totally different meaning. Right. It's sexier. That means HBO might pick it up, that we can show titties. Holy shit, Bri, Bri, this is the ticket. I gotta email that to myself. Pookie drove with one hand, thumbed his cell phone keys with the other. Brian's gaze nervously flicked between the road ahead and Pookie's phone. Is there any point in me reminding you texting and driving is illegal? Nope, Pookie said. He hit the last button and put the phone back in his pocket. Speaking of plot lines, Bri-Bri, any more of those dreams last night? Brian paused, then shook his head. L-L-W-T-L, Pookie said. Let me hear it. Similar to the first one? Brian closed his eyes. The tangy taste of blood echoed on his tongue. No, worse. Talk to her, brother. What happened? Not really sure, Brian said. Then, in barely a breath, I think I tore his arm off. He couldn't bring himself to say what he really remembered. I bit his arm off, and it tasted better than anything I've ever known. You tore his arm off, Pookie said, nodding as if that was the most normal thing in the world. Nice. And what did you do with said arm? Brian closed his eyes, trying to crystallize his fuzzy dream memories. I don't know. I woke up after that part. It was weird in another way, too. How so? I woke up sporting wood. Pookie let out his sound. That's new. I wake up with wood every day. Can't even pee in the toilet. It won't point down. Got a whiz in the shower. It's golden rainbows for all. Thanks for sharing. So you woke up with a rager. So what? Brian chewed on his bottom lip. Because I'm pretty sure I was turned on by the killing. Had the first dream also aroused him? No, not that he could remember. But murdering the kid, all that hate mixed up with lust, lust for pain... Lust for fear. Brian tried to push the thoughts away. Was it in the same place? Pookie said. The dream. Did you recognize the location? Brian started to talk, then paused, remembering the red blanket at Fern Street. He'd seen it in his dream, and then impossibly found it in real life. What if there was something from last night's dream waiting for him? Something far worse than an abandoned red blanket with yellow duckies and brown bunnies? All it would take was one quick trip to set his mind at ease. Post and Meacham Place, Brian said. Roger, Adam-12, Pookie said. See the man, see the man at Post and Meacham. Pookie suddenly changed lanes for no reason, cutting off a Volkswagen as he headed for Post Street. Chapter 23. Brian's Dose of Reality Pookie eased the Buick to a stop. Meacham Place looked quiet, empty. Beyond the black gate, the alley seemed undisturbed. Bits of trash dotted the cracked pavement. On the alley's right side, four narrow trees stretched up, waiting for the brief window of time when the sun would be overhead and send light down between the two buildings. Brian stared at the abandoned one-story building on the alley's left. Paint and graffiti-covered boards covered the old laundromat's three-arched windows. Across the alley from the urban ruin was a three-story narrow brick building, well-kept. Need as you please. Decay on one side of the street, finery on the other. Plenty of that to go around in San Francisco. At the bottom corner of the abandoned building, where the sidewalk turned under the black gate and into the alley, Brian saw the place where he had hidden under a hunter's blind, a blanket watching for the prey, the boy to walk past. Brian rolled down his window and smelled it. A scent, thick and rich, billowing out of the alley carried by a breeze that slid into his nose. It was the same odor that had made him dizzy up on the roof with Paul Maloney and polyester-rich. The same, but also unique. Pooks. You smell that? He heard Pookie sniff. Maybe? It smells like piss? Piss, yes. Piss, but also something else. Brian looked to the four scraggly trees growing out of the narrow sidewalk. At the base of the farthest tree, wedged between the trunk and the building, a blanket, dark and rumpled. Bri-bri? A blanket, covering something about the size of a man. A man, or a big teenage boy. No, it was a dream. Just a dream. His tongue tasted the memory of hot blood. His mouth salivated. "'Hey, seriously,' Pookie said. "'Are you okay?' Brian didn't answer. He got out of the car and walked to the black gate. He held the square bars the way a prisoner holds his jail cell door. The pointed tops of the bars were a good three feet above his head. In his dream, an effortless standing jump had carried him over this gate. But in the waking world, he saw that would be impossible— The dark blanket looked wet, wetness on the sidewalk, streaks of it, wetness on the brick wall, in lines and patterns, in symbols and words. He vaguely recognized these things, but only saw bits of them out of the corner of his eye. He could not look away from the blanket. The gate rattled as Brian climbed it, the sound of a car door shutting. Brian, answer me, man. Brian dropped down on the other side. He walked toward the blanket. Behind him, the gate rattled again, followed by sound of big dress shoes hitting the pavement. Brian, this is blood. It's everywhere. Brian didn't answer. That scent, so overpowering. It's on the walls, Pookie said. Jesus, I think they painted a picture in blood, right on the fucking walls. Brian reached for the blanket. His fingers clenched on fabric, wet fabric. He yanked the blanket away. A ravaged corpse. Its right arm had been ripped off. A piece of collarbone jutted out from near the neck. The stomach had been cut to pieces, intestines dragged out, then shoved back in like dirt stuffed back into a hole. So much blood. And that face, puffy and swollen, missing eye, shattered jaw, The boy's own mother wouldn't recognize him, but the hair. Brian recognized the hair, black, curly, wiry. To the left of the body, a white baseball hat streaked with blood spatter. Brian! Pookie's voice again. Something in his tone forced Brian to turn. Pookie was staring at the mutilated body. He looked up at Brian, his expression one of disbelief perhaps even shock. Brian, how did you know about this? Brian didn't have an answer. The smell of piss was so strong it made his head spin. Pookie's right hand moved a touch closer to the left flap of his sport coat. Brian, did you do this? Brian shook his head. No, no way, man. You know I couldn't do something like this. Pookie's eyes looked so cold. Was this the face Perp saw when he took them down? A happy-go-lucky man, unless you were in his sights. Then Pookie Chang became serious business. Step out of the alley, Pookie said. Slowly. And keep your hands away from your gun. Pooks, I'm telling you that I didn't. You knew! How could you know? That was the million-dollar question. If there was an answer... Did Brian really want to know it? I told you, Brian said. I had a dream. Pookie took a breath, then nodded. Right, a dream. If you had knowingly done this for whatever reason, you wouldn't have told me about it. And you sure as hell wouldn't have brought me right to the body. But it doesn't change the fact that you knew. Book, I... Shut the fuck up, Brian. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to believe my instincts and not my eyes. You're going to step out of this alley and stay out until I tell you to move. I'm going to call this in. We're going to gather evidence and see if anything points to you. Meantime, you don't say a word to anyone about your dreams or anything else. I'm going to wait and pray that my best friend, my partner, is not a fucking murderer. Pookie suspected him. But Pookie knew Brian. Knew him better than anyone. I'm not. Brian said, I'm not a murderer. Pookie raised his eyebrows. Yeah? Are you sure about that? Brian opened his mouth to answer, but nothing came out. Because when it came down to it, he wasn't sure at all.
0: You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young.